Hey guys, this is Harsh. Welcome back to Game Changers Podcast, inspiring conversations with leaders of tomorrow. I have with me my co-host Suki for the day with our guest Martin Kerr. Uh, thanks, Martin, for coming on. Uh, I've known Martin for a while. He is, um, first of all, he's he's a fantastic musician, but he's also a fantastic soccer player. Uh, we played <laughs> soccer for uh, for a couple a uh, couple months, and uh, I didn't even know he was in in the music industry until I found out about him, you know, on social media. And I thought I know this guy, so. You know, it's perfect. I already had an in with him, but, you know, I'd love for you to give an intro for yourself. Well, thanks, Harsh. It's great to be here um, with you and Suki. Um, yeah, I'm originally from England, so I'm a, I'm a half-decent soccer player there. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm good by Canadian standards, <laughs> not so much back home. Um, but, yeah, I played every day, several times a day growing up, and uh, my second love was, was music and um to be honest, I, I couldn't split them. I love to play every play soccer every day and sing every day. And uh, I managed to build a career for myself here uh, as a musician, starting out on the street. And um, that's what I do full-time now. It's been what, 12 years full-time, and I'm uh, yeah. really lucky to be able to get to make a living doing what I love. Definitely. And you've had, like, um, you know, I want to congratulate you, first of all, because your track, um, the new, your new song, Isolation Groove, has been doing really well. <laughs> You know, I was watching the news the other day and I was like, this guy's, you know, was on Global. It was on you know, a bunch of different news channels and um, it was yeah. kind of unique how you found a way out of, I guess, found a way to be creative and not, you know, not become a victim of the situation, which I thought was really inspiring. You know, find, finding new opportunities, finding new ways to be creative and kind of use the situation to your advantage in whatever means possible. Awesome. Yeah, it was actually really spontaneous. We had a, a recording session booked anyway. Um, it, this would have been, what, Friday, like the 19th of March, I think. And um, it was the day that things really started getting shut down here in Edmonton. They started announcing a bunch of business closures and school closures. And uh, But I had this collaborations project underway. I'm doing an album um, of collaborations. So every, every song features a different local artist uh, from here in Edmonton. And uh, on this particular day, I had a session book with Anne Vreen, who's a fantastic blues soul singer-songwriter, and she tours all over the world, particularly in uh, Europe and Australia. Um, so while she was in town, I had her booked for this co-writing session at Velveteen Audio, a nice studio downtown. And, um, so I was sitting there at like 10 in the morning with her morning coffee talking about what should we write today, and our phones kept pinging. Uh, and all these emails were coming in saying, this gig has been cancelled. Your tour of Europe has been cancelled. This summer festival has been cancelled. So all our plans that we had made for 2020 and had worked so hard for such a long time to put together were kind of being swept away. And so we decided right there and then that we needed to write something fun <laughs> that day to cheer ourselves up, um, just to try and find some light in the situation. Although it's a very serious situation. You know, in hard times, people more than ever they need to laugh and sing and dance. So that's what the song's all about. Yeah, and you know that's very true. And you know, Harsh was telling me about how you started kind of doing neighborhood concerts and stuff like that. Uh -huh. You know, how hard was it for you to kind of adapt through you know isolation and you know kind of adapting your music and catering that towards you know what's going on right now? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, we're just taking one day at a time and responding to opportunities as they come. Uh, but also looking ahead to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And uh, so the first thing really was to reduce our spending um, as, as a business. Um, and, uh, and secondly, to, to keep finding ways to give, because music really is the service industry. 
we're bringing people feelings and experiences. We're bringing uh, a bit of light and hope and joy into people's day. Even with the sad songs or the introspective ones, you know, you're helping people to process their experiences and their emotions, and that can be a very cathartic thing. Um, so just my, my business has always been built around bringing music to people instead of expecting them to come to me. Um, and that's how I've been able to build a business from the streets in a place like Edmonton, where there isn't really much of a conventional music industry. The labels are not interested in what's going on in Edmonton. Uh, the music magazines are not writing about it. But um, there are a million people here who love music and need music. And if you can bring it to them where they are, um, I've always found that's a good way to start. And so, um, like many other musicians, I started off when this hit and all my gigs got cancelled. Um, I started doing online streaming concerts on Facebook and YouTube. And I, honestly, I was overwhelmed. I was blown away by how generous people were. They really understood that it was a tough time for artists as much as anybody, um, financially speaking. And, uh, and they really want to see um, artists keep going and keep being able to create and survive during this period. So fortunately, having, having done this for many years, I have an established fan base somewhat of a few thousand people and, and lots of them tuned in and told their friends to tune in and and those who could contributed to the concert and doing things it was kind of like being a street performer again except through my phone instead of on the street and people would just you know some people would wander by and pop in for a few minutes and uh and then leave again and others would stay for the whole thing and some people could afford to contribute and others couldn't but when you open it up like that, when you give something and, and make it easy for people to give it back, um, good things have happened. And uh, so those, those online concerts went really well. But I did find that as the, the weeks have gone on, uh, the novelty started to wear off a little bit with those online concerts because um, lots of people are doing them, including some huge names, like some of the biggest stars in the world are streaming live from their living rooms. So as people are scrolling through their Facebook or Instagram feeds, you're competing with all of those as well. So. I wanted to find a way to bring bring it to people more directly and in a more personal way. Um, and it kind of fell in our lap, actually, this opportunity to do these sidewalk concerts. I got an email through my website saying, um, I have a lovely balcony at my apartment. Wondered if you could come <laughs> and sing, it, sing in the alleyway and I can listen to you from my, from my balcony and I'll get a few neighbors together to chip in towards the cost. Um, and I said, oh, that's a great idea. And it was just around the corner from my house. So um, she made me an offer and uh, we booked it in for just last Friday night. Um, and then my manager said, this, this could be really something cool. So let's put it on Facebook. And he didn't even ask me. He just put it on Facebook saying, I'm doing sidewalk serenade concerts. Who wants me to come to their block? And we started getting all these messages. Um, and as soon as we actually did one and put it on Facebook Live, the requests started flooding in and we've had dozens and dozens of communities, neighborhoods, blocks, um, asking if I can come and sing for them. And so just it just started last Friday. This weekend we did six concerts. And this, this week starting tonight, I have 10 more booked. Um, we're booking into the middle of May already. So um, it's really cool because we found a way to be able to follow the social distancing protocol. Everybody can listen from their own property. So you can't call it a gathering if everyone's still at home. They're listening from their balcony or their window or their driveway or their front lawn. And I set up uh, on the street in front of their houses and, and play my songs. And I bring us a, a little speaker system. They just have to throw a, uh, an extension cable out to me in the road and I plug in and play. <laughs> um, 
and then people contribute what they can by by e-transfer or by tossing an envelope in my guitar case. Um, mm -hmm. And we've been doing and really well. Those so. videos too. Like I've seen a couple of those videos on uh, on your Instagram where everyone in the neighborhood is kind of you know cheering for you uh, and they're all singing along and. I, th I think it was someone's maybe an event and, you know, there's like a, a bunch of different, um, all the neighbors are out and they're clapping and singing and, you know, chiming in. And it, it was really amazing how, you know, we're still able to connect like that. And you were able to give, I guess, bring that joy to people through your music, even during these yeah. times of adversity. And like you said, you know, these are the times when we need it the most, right? These are the times when we need to laugh and smile and, you know, you know, have those moments with our loved ones. And I think you're, you're one of the people that are, uh, you know, do, making this happen in our city. So, you know, that's super, super exciting. But, you know, wanting to go from there to, I know you talked about a love for your music, right? And you want, mm -hmm. I want to dive into your past a little bit. And, you know, sure. obviously we talked about how you've been doing things now. But when, when you started, how was this for you? Like, what really sparked that love for music? Like, what is it about music that really matters to you? And what was the start like for you? Hmm. Ever since I can remember, I loved to sing. And my parents would play music in the house and they'd sing me to sleep and we'd sing while we were in the car and we'd sing while we were doing the dishes. And neither of them were trained musicians, but they loved music. And they would share with me the music that they loved, the Beatles and James Taylor and Simon and Garfunkel and um, stuff of the time. This would have been the mid eighties I was growing up, Peter Gabriel and Tracy Chapman. Um, and um, so I just grew up singing and when I was five years old, um, I got given a part in the school play, the school Christmas play. It was called Snow Robin. And I was given the lead role. And um, my parents had no idea that I had a big part, but they came along to the school concert. And it turned out that I was the star of the show, this little five-year-old boy. And um, I noticed and I felt the atmosphere in the room change when I sang these songs. I, people were, had tears in their eyes and that they were saying wow to each other and I uh I'd never felt so fulfilled in my life I guess that as a little boy to have this power over people's emotions with my voice and to make them feel something something really good um was a feeling I wanted again and again and ever since then I knew that I wanted to be a singer um so my, my parents were pretty blown away that <laughs> that I had this talent um they'd always knew that I liked to sing, but they didn't realize I could have this impact on people. So um, they were very supportive of me growing up, giving me opportunities to, to learn instruments and be in choirs and to drive me to musical theater practices in the evenings and stuff. So I grew up with lots of opportunities. It was a very small town that I lived in, but um, there were lots of chances to be involved in the arts. Um, and so um, alongside my soccer practice, I managed to squeeze in lots of fun stuff and started a band when I was 13 and started writing my own songs. Um, but I always had it in the back of my mind because people would always say, you know, what's your plan B or what are you going to do for a living? Um, because you can't make money as a musician or, you know, you've, you've got to have a, a golden ticket. People think you need a miracle to, to make it as a musician. You need to be in the right place at the right time or, be signed to a multi-million dollar record contract. And, and so that kind of made me want to prove people wrong. Um, when the time came for me to go to university, I, I didn't go. I went traveling around the world instead um, with a guitar on my back and sang in restaurants and bars and hotels to, to get free rooms uh, and free meals and um, made a lot of friends that way. Um, 
because I so walk us through that, that experience because because I remember you telling me you know you had uh, at at a time in your life when you're 18 you had the opportunity to travel the world and you know with your music but also just as on a level of personal growth right you know you got you yep. said you went to all these countries and you lived in you know, you know homes of these local families and you got to see the culture. Yeah and the you know the way of lives of these people and really have a perspective of you yeah. know outside of where you live and see what the world is actually like walk us through like what that experience was like for you well first of all it was kind of a, a really interesting time for me i was graduating high school my final year and my parents announced that they were going to sell the house and move to china uh, they wanted a new adventure and I, as their youngest kid graduating they were ready to leave um, so it, I had a few months to get used to this idea, but I was quite resistant to it at first. But <laughs> to kind of sweeten the deal, my dad bought me this round-the-world ticket. And he said, if you study hard and you get straight A's in your finals, I'll pay for everything and you can go the day after high school. And if you don't get straight A's, then you need to get a summer job and work until this is paid off and then you can go. Um, so I studied hard. I got my A's. I went off around the world. And um, he had set me up with the route in places where he knew people. So I could stay with families and communities and be involved in stuff when I went to these places instead of just staying in hostels and going around tourist sites. And to me, that was a much more profound experience to experience these countries and cultures as a member of the community instead of as a tourist. Um, so I stayed in Samoa and I went into the jungle um, with this scientist uh, who was teaching the people there about agriculture and how to grow their own cash crops. And um, I stayed in Samoa and I stayed with a, um, a doctoral student who was a friend of my parents who was studying the religions of Samoa and we traveled out to the outlying villages and sang with the people there and danced with the people there. And, uh, and I got to see so many different ways of life and to see that some of the people with the least in terms of material goods or monetary wealth were in some ways living the best lives and had the richest communities where everybody could sing and dance and they did every day and they ate fresh food that they caught themselves that morning and um, it was quite inspiring to see all the different ways that you can build a life um, so that kind of it gave me a lot of ideas and inspiration for for choosing my own path later on fantastic Sorry. Sorry, you said go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Awesome. So, no, I just wanted to actually touch on that. And, you know, I think it's amazing that, you know, you went out of high school and, you know, started experiencing all these things in the heart of the community, right? Because there's a mm -hmm. lot of things that you can learn in, you know, by reading a book or something like that, where, you know, you can read about experiences, but they're different than, you know, you actually being in that circumstance and experiencing it for yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Experiencing for that uh, stuff give you you know that new insight and new knowledge as to you know you said it best actually uh having you know a different view on life you know the richest people have you know they don't necessarily have all these materialistic things right and i think you said that best and you know what what would you say is would you say that you know people should be traveling more or do you think you know education is you know more of the right way or right path for people to go after high school hmm. Well, it's certainly a great privilege to have been able to travel the world at a young age. And not everybody will have that privilege, whether they lack the, the means or the, the right passport. Um, 
And so I don't take that for granted, but there's certainly other ways to experience the cultures of the world. And now that I live in Canada, here in Edmonton, we have the whole world on our doorstep in many ways. There's peoples and cultures from all over the world mixing here. And it's a, it's a very friendly place where you can get to know people from all around the world. So um, you can almost experience those cultures right on your doorstep. Although at this time, of course, it's more difficult to, to mix and mingle. Um, hopefully this, this won't last too long and, uh, and eventually we'll get back to being able to visit each other's homes and places of worship and, <laughs> and businesses and all of those things. Um, so, yeah, I do absolutely recommend it. And I'm very grateful to my parents because we were not a wealthy family by Western standards. My parents both came from working class backgrounds and my mum was an uh, elementary teacher, which is a job that's not nearly as well paid in Britain as it is here. And uh, they, they should be paid more here as well, I think. Um, and my dad worked for a charity publishing religious literature for the Baha'i faith. Um, so I grew up in a Baha'i household. And for them, the most important thing was that I grew up with a consciousness that the whole world is one home and that all the world's peoples are my family. Uh, so my dad had a, a map of the world on my bedroom wall since forever. It's one of the first things I remember is he would teach me all the countries and continents and capitals um, and the flags and all that stuff uh, since I was four or five years old. And, I, and so I wanted to go to those places and experience these cultures and meet these people and hear their stories and their songs ever since I was a little boy. Uh, and any time we had any extra money, um, we would spend it on, on traveling and visiting people. So um, that, that was a wonderful way to be raised, even though I grew up in a very small provincial town with almost no cultural diversity, I was able to experience the world uh, in other ways. So uh, I thank my parents for that. And I, I hope to be able to pass that on to my kids too. Fantastic. And, and I completely agree with that. You know, I've had, I've also had the opportunity to travel some to some countries and seeing, you know, people make the most uh, out of, you know, just the smallest things and find happiness and the little things in, in their life. And, you know, just living a life of so much joy that you, in comparison, you would see a lot more joy than even someone who has a lot of resources, materialism and opportunity. So it was, it's, I completely agree with you. And I think it's a must have experience for anyone to get that perspective on life and how, you know, people live around the world. But, you know, mm. going, you know, fast forward in your life, you know, four years down, uh, there you are dropping out of university and moving to, <laughs> moving to Edmonton with $20 yeah. in your pocket. Uh, tell right. us about that experience. That's, that's, uh, that's a pretty bold move at such a young age. What was going through yeah. your mind at that time and what inspired you to make that decision? Well, just to give you the background, after my year traveling around the world, I decided to settle in Beijing for two years and I studied Chinese for one year and then I got a job as a preschool teacher. And during that time, I happened to, I met a lot of great people, but I happened to meet a young lady from Edmonton at a party one night. And um, we, we chatted for a few hours and uh, I kind of got the feeling that she liked me, uh, but I wasn't really looking at that point. I was actually in love with somebody else at the time. And so I wasn't interested, but a couple of years later, she got in touch with me. And by this time, I was going to school, going to university in the States. I'd been offered a scholarship by another great person that I'd met in China. And so um, I, was, I was one year away from getting a degree. Um, and that scared me because once you have a degree, you might end up with a real job. And I just wanted it to be a singer. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I, there was two reasons that I decided to drop out. One was that I, I didn't want to go down that 
path of, of conventional, uh, you know, working for other people. I, I really wanted to be a musician and I wanted to be my own boss. And also I really want, I had fallen in love with Tara, this, this girl from Edmonton, long distance, we've been keeping in touch. Mm-hmm. And um, what attracted me to her was her incredible directness. There were many, many things that attracted me to her. But the first thing really was that she wrote to me and said, hey, Martin, this was after two years of not talking to her. We'd just you know, been doing our own thing. She wrote to me and said, hey, Martin, I'm thinking about the kind of person I might like to spend my life with. And I made this chart of all the guys I know and all the qualities I'm looking for. And you got the most <laughs> points. Um, <laughs> so what do you think about that? And um, I thought, wow, that's crazy because <laughs> we hardly know each other. But it's also really cool to start a relationship with so much openness and honesty about what you're looking for and who you are. Um, and, and it gave me a lot of confidence to, to be talking to somebody who knew what they wanted in life and knew who they wanted to spend it with and why. And it wasn't just, let's see what happens. Let's wait and see. Let's see how we feel. Um, because I don't think you can really live life like that. I mean, I like to be spontaneous and respond to things in the moment, but you also have to, decide what you want and go for it. And um, so she was doing that with me. And the more I got to know her, the more I liked her. She came to visit me, I went to visit her. And, and soon after we decided to get married. So I dropped out of university and I moved to Edmonton with literally $20 in my pocket. And she was a student at the time, um, going to the U of A for law. And so she had some student loans that we lived off very modestly in a one bedroom apartment. And um, I basically volunteered for the first year because I didn't have a work permit. I, I volunteered uh, teaching a children's choir and going to open mics, sharing my songs with people. Um, and just getting to know the community here in Edmonton. I was really pleasantly surprised with how friendly and helpful people were. So as soon as I got my work permit, I started trying to play, get paid gigs at, at little cafes and, uh, and charity events and stuff. And um, eventually decided to uh, to hit the streets. Um, I used to go to the farmer's market around the corner from, from where I lived and I saw buskers there doing quite well and I thought I could, I could try that. So uh, I tried it and, uh, and got good at it, persevering, finding ways to, to sound better and to make it easier for people to help me. Um, I found as a busker, of course you've got to, um, you've got to sing people a beautiful song and, and brighten their day but you also have to tell them what to do um, not so I would open up my guitar case as buskers usually do but I also put a sign there saying take a CD pay what you like um, and in brackets I would say they're $20 in stores so lots of people would drop a 20 and take a CD some people would drop a toonie or a five but it all worked out to a pretty generous donation and some people would just give money and take nothing and I had another card that said available for events take a card and a big stack of business cards with my number and a list of the kind of events that I do. And so through playing on the street at the market um, and all the cards that people took and the CDs that people took, my calendar very quickly filled up with paid gigs for the whole year. Um, even though busking was just a summer job, um, the, the gigs that I got from busking kept me busy year round. And I found myself playing for all different kinds of people. Usually as a musician, you're trying to play the music venues the few bars and clubs that have regular live music and are known for that. Uh, but there's only a certain kind of people or a certain sliver of the population that actually goes to those places. But by doing these events for people's birthday parties and, and anniversaries and, you know, 
client appreciations and staff appreciations and charity events. I was playing for all different kinds of people of all different ages and backgrounds and cultures. Um, and so I found I had a very diverse fan base here in Edmonton. And now having done that for many years, anytime I leave the house in Edmonton, I bump into somebody who says, you played at my nan's 90th birthday, or you played my sister's wedding, or I saw you playing at the market. And it's such a nice way to experience a very modest level of fame that all these people feel like they're my friends because I played for them in a very intimate setting. And they want to help me because they see that I'm an ordinary guy trying to make a living doing something good. For sure. And, you know, I've, uh, I've heard, you know, you said you've, you've been busking for about, what, 10 years or so. You had busked yeah. for 10 years. So. And I think it's really insane because I think it requires an insane amount of humility and an insane amount of, you know, I guess, passion for, you know, whatever, whatever your craft is to say, hey, you know, I don't care about other people's judgment. Because, you know, there's, you know, family members, everyone's going to say to you, you know, you're still on the street, you're still on the street, it's been so much time, you know, what about career, get a job, and there's so much, so much uh, judgment and so much pressure that you get from, you know, people who expect you to live a normal life, right? But, you know, staying committed and being humble and knowing you need to do what you need to do for yourself, I think that's amazing. I just think that's, that's one of the most, like, brilliant things I've heard and I've seen anyone do is, you know, performing at this, at a street level for 10 years, having the humility to do that on the street and ask people for donations and do that for 10 years and build up an audience and credibility to get to a stage where now you're performing at Winspear Center, you have a show for Jubilee Auditorium, you have you had a performance at Rogers Place, your album hit number two on iTunes chart. So I think it's, it's insane that that consistency and that humility led to something so amazing for you. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey for me because I, I certainly didn't expect those things to happen. Um, I had some dreams, but to me, they were dreams, things like playing at the Windspear, playing with the symphony orchestra, opening for Sarah McLaughlin at Rogers Place. Those are things that I've been able to do in the last few years um, that I really thought were out of reach for me and that would take a miracle. But actually, they've fallen into my lap as a result of the very humble work that I did on the streets. And it's not... It doesn't have to be as humble as you think. Maybe when people think of a street performer, they might think of someone sitting in a doorway of a store on White Ave, um, you know, strumming their guitar with a few coins in their case. But uh, that wasn't the approach I took. I wanted to take music to people in a place and time where they had the opportunity to really listen. And so that's why I went to the farmer's market instead of just on a busy street corner, because People are not in a hurry to get anywhere. When they go to the farmer's market on a summer Saturday, they're going there to enjoy the culture. They're going there to buy expensive organic apples instead of the cheap ones from the supermarket and to enjoy the sunshine and to see the community. And they want to hang out and they've got cash in their pocket. Um, So it made a lot of sense for me to be there. And honestly, the, the markets that we have in Edmonton, the, the two big ones, the Strathcona one and the, the city market on 104th Street, which has now moved, um, and also the St. Albert one, these are big markets. They get 10, 20,000 people on a Saturday. And, you know, where else as an independent musician can you reliably go and play for 20,000 people um, with no advertising? It was an incredible opportunity to get in front of those people. Um, and of course, you do need to be humble because lots of people will breeze right by you or step over your 
guitar case or ask you to turn down or not to play that song again. So you have to develop a very thick skin. But there's also an incredible amount of positive feedback. When you see little children dancing or old ladies that come and listen to you in the same spot every single week and stay for the whole show. Um, and pe the people that come up and talk to you afterwards and say how much they moved, uh, they were moved by your song like with tears in their eyes. It's like, wow, I just sang a song, but it really touched this person's heart and changed their day. Um, so I made some fans for life and friends for life playing on the street. And it's incredible. There's so many things that you don't even know could possibly happen until you put yourself out there and try uh, and, and offer something to the community. And, and I think a lot of musicians, and I, I, I count myself in this, have spent too much time being afraid of what might happen and not excited about what might happen. Um, because there's a lot of uncertainty in any business venture. Um, but there's, there should be at least as much excitement as fear in that. Um, and if you prepare something, it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be sincere and it has to have some value. And you take it to people when you deliver it. You go through that process of trial and error, finding what works, what doesn't, and improving every time. Um, and good things always come of that. As an artist now, you know, you probably you inspire a whole generation of people, right? And so I'm curious to know as to who inspired you when you were younger or even now in this day and age, you know, who inspires you and who touches you to the degree that you touch other people with your music? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, there's, there's a few famous artists that I grew up listening to that I really loved. Usually singer songwriters. I like music where the, the lyrics were really key and that the lyrics are kind of good enough to stand up as poetry on their own. People like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and James Taylor, Bill Withers. Um, I loved stuff that I could sing along to. And there was some more exciting stuff that I liked, like Smashing Pumpkins and Queen. Um, <laughs> but um, generally it was the kind of mellow acoustic stuff, stuff that I could see myself doing with my guitar. Um, and that was the reason I picked up a guitar was so that I could perform by myself. And growing up, I'd had a few experiences of being very up close and personal with musicians. Um, who played the guitar and sang like around a campfire. I used to go to these summer schools and arts retreats and stuff that my parents would send me to through the Baha'i community. And there would always be music evenings and there would be somebody with a guitar that would start singing sometimes original songs, sometimes prayers or pop songs. And just the feeling that they were able to have um, on, on that small gathering around the campfire, the, the sense of excitement and, and realness in the air uh, was something that just really set my nerves a, a tingling and I wanted to have that feeling again and I wanted to be able to give that feeling to other people so I've always loved very intimate music by ordinary people and my CD collection although I don't tend to use it as much as I used to is mostly populated by people you've never heard of people that I've met at a festival or a singer-songwriter night or a, an open mic that I've traded CDs with. I've always been more interested in people that I can actually meet rather than the people in the magazines or on the radio. Um, obviously, there's lots of great people out there, but I'm really interested in the fact that there's so many incredibly talented people that are not household names. Mm. Um, so I, one of my early songs that I wrote in university was called Undiscovered Geniuses. And it was, I wrote it in the middle of the night after I'd just been to an open mic at a coffee shop. And I was just blown away by this CD of poetry, spoken word poetry that I'd been given by one of the artists there. And uh, 
yeah, I wanted to write a song about how incredible it is that there's so much talent in the world that will never become famous or rich. And I want to spend my life looking for that talent. Well, let's actually talk about, you know, your name was mentioned with some of the great talents. You know, your song was, you know, number, or your album was number two on iTunes chart, right? Just <laughs> here and then, you know, right below Imagine Dragons. And so what was that like for you? It was pretty crazy. And um, without downplaying it too much, because it was a real dream come true for me to see that happen. This was at a time, 2017 summer, I released this album in conjunction with my big show with Sarah McLaughlin. Um, so not only did I get all of my fans and friends to buy the album on the same week, um, which numbered a few thousand people, I got all the people inside Roger's place to hold up their phones on my last song. Uh, and I said, you can only, uh, I was singing Hallelujah as my closing song. And uh, I said, you can only um, set your torch on uh, and wave it if you've bought my album on iTunes first. <laughs> so we got hundreds and hundreds of people waving their phones. And I think most of them must have bought the album. Um, because, yeah, I, I got to number two the next morning. I was actually above Ed Sheeran for one day, which was pretty cool. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so obviously this is at a time when iTunes was not the biggest dog in town anymore, but um, I was still incredibly flattered and, and humbled to, to be able to see my name alongside those great names. Um, and really, just from one place, the power of a fan base in one city, um, because outside of Edmonton, there's not that many people that know me. I've had a little bit of airplay on CBC and um, a couple of national TV spots on Global and stuff, but basically 90% of my audience is in Edmonton. And um, even that is is something special. It's very special to me. And it really works for me because um, one of the, the hardest things about being a musician is having a family as well. Um, and people often find they have to choose between having a family and having a music career because most musicians are constantly on the road trying to eke out a living playing gigs all over the continent um, or all over the world sometimes. But for me, that was never an option because I, I, ha I had a wife that I loved, that I wanted to be with, and we wanted to have kids. Now I have three young kids at home, ages 10, 7, and 4, and I don't want to miss their childhood being on the road. So I'm missing it instead doing podcasts with you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm able to work from home and see them every day and read them stories at night. Um, which is a great gift because my audience is concentrated in my hometown. Um, I'm playing three, four, sometimes 10 times a week um, within half an hour of my front door. So it, it, I kind of designed it that way and it kind of happened by chance as well uh, because that was all I had time to do was work on my local market. Um, it's, uh, it's turned out really well. It's not a conventional way to have a music career. Um, and it certainly means that a lot of the record labels and stuff, even after having a top 10 album, are not interested in me because they want somebody that can, can make them money all over the world. Um, but that's fine by me. I, I'm, I'm not really bothered about uh, getting signed. I'm much more interested in the impact I can have upon the people I'm singing for in my community. For sure. And, and I remember you telling me that as well, you know, where it's super important for you to have that balance where you've never wanted to be on, you know, one, one of those world tours. You just want, you just want to, you know, make a living doing what you love and have a family life that, a family life that you, you've always wanted. But, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, how did you get to that point? What's that gap in the middle where a guy from, you know, the $20 in his pocket moves to Edmonton, you know, at such a young age, 
is a street performer, but now is at a point where you kind of you're beating Ed Sheeran on the charts, performing at Rogers Place, Winsbury Center, selling out these shows, and it's it's somewhat you know someone would call it bizarre. You know, if if, if someone yeah. saw you ten years from you know when you're 22 performing at uh, the fam- the farmers market, no one would predict you know that would ever happen. So what's that journey been like for you? Where what's that gap in the middle from that finish to where that start was? Where what's yeah. really got you got you through that? Um, well, a big change happened for me about four years ago um, when uh, a friend of mine from my soccer team, actually, he wasn't even really a friend. He was a guy I played soccer with and we didn't even get on that well, um, <laughs> was, was looking for a new place to live. Uh, he said, does anyone know about someone renting a room? And I actually had a spare room in my basement that had just been vacated and we were trying to rent it out. Um, so he asked if he could come check it out. I said, sure. And he ended up moving in. Um, to our spare room and at the time he worked at the bank full-time as a loans manager and delivered pizzas in the evenings to help support his young daughter and um, he lived with us for a year um, and didn't really show much interest in my music I was gigging all the time and uh, he would see me leaving the house with my guitar and coming back with some money so he knew I must be doing okay but um, he never expressed much interest in my music but a year later, his, his grandma was visiting. She actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago, unfortunately. But um, I gave him two tickets to the show that I had. I had a theater show at the Citadel, and it was a charity event opening for Jim Cuddy from Blue Rodeo, who's kind of a big deal here in Canada of people from the 90s. Um, and uh, I thought she might like my show because I tend to do very well with older ladies <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> They like, they like what I do. So I, I gave him these tickets and said, bring your nan out to my show. I think she really like it. So he said, okay. And he brought her out. And I worked really hard on this, on this set for this show because it was a big opportunity for me to open for someone like Jim Cuddy at a beautiful theater. Usually I was playing in people's living rooms and backyards or on the street. And so I put a lot of effort into this set and, and especially into the things that I was going to say in between my songs to, to kind of weave it all together, the stories I was going to tell. And, uh, I got people laughing and crying and singing along and at the end of my set on their feet with a standing ovation, which doesn't always happen for an opening act. And they, um, I had offered myself to the event. Um, I, I said, I'll give you a house concert to, to auction off during the intermission. So um, this guy from the radio came up to auction me off. And usually you know, I was thinking we might raise a few hundred extra bucks for the charity. And it went for $5,000 which to me was an unimaginable amount of money at the time for the street performer. Um, and so, uh, and at the end of the show, I was selling CDs as fast as I could get them out of the box. And my friend, Anthony, who lived in my basement, came to help me at the CD desk. He said, man, this is amazing. I didn't know you were so good. And um, so he was really impressed with the impact that I had on that audience. And the next day we were pushing our daughters on the swings um, at the park and he said, dude, you should be doing more with your career. Why are you still playing on the street? And I said, well, I want to do these theatres all the time, but I don't get the opportunity. And I've always, I've always wanted to book my own theatre show, but I feel like it would be too much work and too much risk to do by myself because I'm just a one-man operation. He said, well, I'll help you. Um, let's do it together. And so with his help and his confidence, um, I put down a deposit on a 500-seat theatre called Festival Place, 
And he came with me to every single backyard party and every single street performance for the whole summer for six weeks and set up a little table to sell tickets to people who liked my music. And uh, with that method, we were able to sell all 500 tickets and pack that house. And uh, that I was so nervous for that show. It was my first ever kind of solo show that I put on myself at a real theater. And it was an incredible experience for me. It was a real landmark to be able to do that. And I felt like suddenly I had a real business. Um, and so we took that money that we made on that show and we put it down $4,000 as the deposit on the Winspear Center, which was the theater I really wanted to play. I played a couple songs there before for a charity event and it's the most beautiful theater. It's where the symphony orchestra plays. The acoustics are incredible. It seats 1,700 people. And so we gave ourselves six months to sell that place using the same method. At all my house concerts, we'd sell tickets to people um, to come to the big show. Once they'd seen me in that intimate arena uh, of someone's backyard or living room, and I'd been able to kind of touch their heart with my songs and stories, they really bought into that dream that I had. And it really was my dream to have mm -hmm. a sold out show at this big theater. And so we did it. We sold it out 1,700 seats. And suddenly the, the music industry in Alberta and beyond started to notice me and take me seriously. Um, so um, I wasn't just a street performer anymore. I was the guy that sold out the Winspear Center. And there's lots of major label acts that struggle to sell out a venue of that size. So um, it was really quite an achievement in other people's eyes, as well as something that I was very, very proud of. And my audience who had been cheering me on uh, on the sidewalk for many years were so excited to see me living out my dreams in that way. And it really gave everything a big boost and created a new sense of value and legitimacy about what I was doing. And so using that platform, we were able to do things like getting an album in the top 10 and being offered the opening spot for Sarah McLaughlin. And that, that actually came from somebody who had seen me at the market. And every time he walked by, he said, Martin Kerr, I've got big plans for you. And nothing ever came of it until one day I got this phone call saying, how would you like to open for Sarah McLaughlin? So, uh, and I feel yeah, like a, it's, bit, a big chunk of everything that happened for you was from, you know, this, this group, this community of people that you've built for yourself over, you know, your years of busking and you've, you've met these people for so long and you've performed for them. And, you know, they kind of had this connection with you where they trusted your, uh, they, they trusted your credibility, they trusted your love for music and they wanted to invest in that and they saw your potential and they, they saw that, you know, the experience you were able to create. And I think that's a huge part of, you know, how you bust for so many times, but you built these really intimate connections with all these individuals that ended up, you know, numbering up to thousands of people over so many years. And these are the people that, like you said, you know, big companies struggle to, you know, sell, sell theaters like that, but you were able to do it, you know, just through these connections that you built over the years. Absolutely. Um, I, I try to see each person as a, as a human being and, and value the relationship. When people come up to buy a CD, I want, want to ask them their name and, and, and take a minute just to talk to them um, and, and make them feel that, that I really do value their support um, because I do, because I actually depend on it. And without that, I don't have a career and my songs don't get heard by anybody. So um, uh, I think people feel that feel the fact that I genuinely appreciate them and they want to come back and feel that again. Um, so I also try to write songs um, in a very honest way. 
uh, uh, maybe about things that you might not typically hear songs about, like songs about that. I have a song called A Little Longer that's um, inspired by my kids growing out of their clothes and their bikes and stuff and wanting them to stay little a little longer. Um, and, and so people my age in their 30s who have little kids or, or older whose kids have already grown up really relate to that song. Uh, and it's probably not a song that you'd hear on the radio because it's not cool, but it's very honest and very real. And that's something that people appreciate. Um, and it's really about. authentic and like people really resonate with that, right? Especially when that's you right. put a lot of emotion and there's, there's, it's not just a made up story. It's your story and you put an actual, you know, you paint a picture for them. You make them feel things that you felt. And that's really what connects people through music. That's the, that's the, that's the language of music where you can, you know, through your, through your words, and you know through the way you say them you can connect to people and share your authenticity mm -hmm. share your stories and you know absolutely and they resonate with that yeah but you know going I, and I was, that, um yeah sure uh, you know i just I'm, I'm curious you know because um i want you to because there's so many new um because our, our major audience is you know millennials and gen z's and a lot mm -hmm. of these are headed towards the music industry looking to build a yep. career in that and you know for us it's really important because we want to you're i would call you definitely a successful successful uh, a hugely successful musician and i want to hear what your advice is to these younger musicians that are coming out these artists and how they can really build a successful career in the music industry yeah obviously i don't have anything prescriptive because i'm just one example and i can tell you what worked for me and you might have to find something different that works for you especially working in different genres one thing that's worked in my favor for sure is that the kind of music i play is not really offensive to anybody um, and it can be adapted to all different ages and environments and events and so that's made me very flexible as a performer even though i'm mostly doing the same thing i can do it for all different kinds of people and events and it still works Whereas if you're playing a, a more extreme kind of music, it maybe doesn't fit in a lot of places. So that's something that's an advantage to me. And I think that's a conscious choice on my part. I mean, that's what I'm naturally attracted to as, as a listener as well. But I've always liked things that bring people together instead of dividing them into a subsection of, you know, the people who like this kind of thing. Um, and I'm much more interested in playing for people who don't consider themselves music fans. Because music fans, I find, are actually very fickle people, and 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 they they're like impress me, and um, they're not easily impressed because they know so much already and they know so many great musicians. I'm much more interested in playing for the people who love music but they don't really know much about it, or uh, or they don't know why they love it. Um, because there's and there's a lot more of those people out there, um, and uh, and they're underserved, I find, because they're not typically going out to the, the music venues. And if you bring the music to them, they're like, wow, I do love music, you know? So um, that's something that has served me well, is that attitude and that flexibility. And also being willing um, to play popular covers um, is something that musicians sometimes look down on um, because they want to play their original music. Or, and original music is so valuable. And I love to play my original songs. Um, but learning other people's songs has been a great education for me. And also, especially playing on the streets, I found that playing something recognizable will stop people in their tracks. It's like, it brings, it evokes a memory in them when you hear that song that they heard at a certain time in their life, and it makes them stop. 
and then you have their attention and you can give them something original as well. So I've used that dynamic in all of my performances now. I always throw in at least one or two popular covers that will connect with people in a slightly different way and be a point of commonality between us. So I find that in business, in, in all kinds of businesses and industries, you're trying to give something familiar and something innovative at the same time and balance those two factors. My wife says it's like when A&W brings out a new burger, it's like exactly the same as the old burger with a slightly different sauce, you know, or, or a different kind of cheese. You know, you don't have to innovate very much to be original. Um, you, you need to give people enough of what they know uh, and work in that context. So I, I don't feel like I'm really breaking many barriers, but you can really have a breakthrough with something simple. And um, to take that into a marketing perspective for a second or a sales perspective, um, in recent years, CD sales have absolutely plummeted, as everybody knows. Most people don't even have a CD player anymore. Um, and that used to be my biggest income driver was the CD sales at my gigs and at the market. And so as those started to dry up, we had to find a new way to repackage my recorded music. And we came up with these USB sticks. A lot of people are selling USB drives and thumb drives, um, but they're not very exciting and they're not very personal. So I'm just trying to see if I have one here. Give me one sec. I know I've got one in a box somewhere. Um, Oh, darn. I'll have to, have to send you a picture of one or something. Sure, but, uh, no, they're, they're like this big and they look like me. Uh, you can get custom USB drives made. We sent a photograph of me to this USB maker and they sent back this little miniature Martin Kerr. It's like a little action figure or something. And it splits in half at the middle. So that when you open it up, it actually looks like you're taking off my pants. So we make a joke of that at the gigs. Um, and um, we put everything I've ever recorded on it, including some unreleased stuff. Um, live albums, covers albums, original albums, um, full band stuff, acoustic stuff. So people that really love my music and want to get the whole experience can take it home with them in this fun little package. And instead of selling 10 or $20 CDs, we're now selling $50 USBs. And people still feel like they're getting a great deal because there's nine albums on there. Um, and they also feel that they're really supporting me, which they are. So I found that it's really really important to give people a high value proposition or opportunity to support you in a substantial way. Um, so doing things like pay what you like concerts that we've been doing online lately and, and these street concerts that I'm doing also are also pay what you can. Um, so you'd be amazed how much people want to give sometimes if you give them the opportunity. If the only thing you're selling is a $20 CD or a $10 t-shirt, then that's all you're going to make. But if you give people the opportunity to give more, you'll, you might be surprised how many people want to. For sure. Completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, so, you know, as we, as we move towards our close for the podcast, we always ask every guest this one question. You know, what, uh, what is one word that describes a game changer for you or that's allowed you to be successful in your career in the music industry? One word? Yep. <laughs> Is that, wow. Okay. Um, respond. I think um, you can take that in many, many ways. It's so important to respond when people make a comment um, on your Facebook post, um, when people come up to you to tell you how they felt after your show, when you get a piece of fan mail, 
when something in your industry changes, you have to respond um, to innovate, to do something different in response to that crisis or opportunity, however you choose to see it. Um, so, so being alive to the possibilities in each moment, I think, is what that word respond means. And being, for me as a performer, I have to be responsive to the moment of the performance. And that's what really makes you a good performer, I think. Not only the rehearsal and the talent that you have to have, but being alive to the audience in the moment of the performance and being alive to the song and actually experiencing the feelings that the song evokes as you're performing it. Um, so that's the word I would choose. Awesome. And uh, Martin, where can people find your music online? Um, well, martinkermusic.com, M-A-R-T-I-N-K-E-R-R.com um, is my website. And you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and my handle is at martinkermusic. And, also and of course, Spotify and Apple. <laughs> absolutely yeah all the streaming platforms spotify I'm, apple amazon on spotify i have a couple of his songs i was uh, I, I i'm a huge fan of you know house and electronic music that's what I, well that's what i grew up oh with. cool and your remix for um what, enemy enemy yeah when you you had a couple of people from you know you told me singapore that made those remixes and they're they're really great so i, I listen to that remix all the time actually so nice it's pretty cool yeah it's pretty cool um yeah, well thank you so much for being on it was a lovely you know, getting to know your journey. Obviously, um, I guess I, I know you on the pitch, but now you know, now I know you off the pitch as well. And <laughs> and I wanted to share your story of how amazing it is. And it's it's kind of it's kind of hopeful in the sense of you know, in a city like Edmonton, it is still possible to really make a living out of you know doing what you love. And I think your yes. inspiration for you know upcoming artists and musicians and a way of you know how to take it as a music career and how to behave and how to be a performer and what it really means to be humble and you know that's the, that's the one where i see you that's the one word i would choose to and what i see you as you know someone with extreme humility so thank you so much Ash. energy and your time today and thanks for coming on that's really kind of you thanks for having me and i hope this was useful and actually, if people are watching on YouTube, it's great if you can hop onto my channel and, uh, and check out one of my videos. There's a, there's a couple of fun ones that I think you'll enjoy and maybe share with somebody. Link in the description, guys. For sure. All right. Thank you so much, guys, for watching. That's your episode with Martin Kerr. Um, this is my, my, myself, Harsh. And we will see you guys on the next one. Take care. Stay safe. Stay inspired. Thanks, guys. See you guys.